My name is Scott Thompson. Um, Raymond Scott Thompson. My dad calls me Raymond. My mom called me Scott. I was, I've been in Tri-Cities my whole life, born in Pasco. Live in Kennewick. Um, I had a first wife, like a lot of people, and had three beautiful daughters from her. And we divorced. The kids stayed with me. And um, I met my wife, Cassandra. Very beautiful. She had seven kids and I had three. So we went for it. We met and within a couple months we were getting married. And we got 17 years on us now. And I've never been happier with my relationship with her. A lot of love, and a lot of fighting. A lot of loud, <laughs> a lot of quiet, but it's all good. The thing that made God real and personal to me is uh, Eastlake. <laughs> One of our sons come here and my wife come with him. This is over a year ago. And uh, my wife loved it. She came a couple times with him and then he moved to Spokane. And of course she couldn't get me to come and because I already knew everything. My health depleted a lot, of course. I guess you gotta hit rock bottom before people start reaching out to God. My health wasn't doing well at all. And I'd been leading my family for so long from the back and didn't realize it. And she talked me into coming here to Eastlake one Sunday. And I just felt Brent, like I said, Brent was just talking right at me, you know, so strongly to me. And my cousin came with us too, three bobs, but, and it was just so strong and so direct. It, it was freaking me out, you know? I mean, I, I was tearful, I was laughing. I had a great day. So the next weekend I come, same thing, only more intense, more vivid, more, energy and me and my cousin and I you know I remember walking out to the rig you know before we left and giving each other a big hug and you know and my wife and third weekend he brought his wife and all my kids came all his kids came things have always worked out good for me whether I had it coming or not and um Looking back, I'd say more not. Beautiful parents, beautiful grandparents. A lot of love when I was growing up. Just not a lot of God. Not a lot of Heavenly Father in my house, so to speak, I guess. And uh, it's unfortunate, because when I was younger, I had a lot of energy. I think I could have done some good there. But it's not too late. <laughs> and in my younger years, my family was in a religion. And basically, it was, my parents included, looking back, it was a cult. And I developed a hate for God. And it took my wife 17 years to turn me around and make me understand and allow me to see to understand. And, you know, since January, I've been, I just got done reading the New Testament. <laughs> and, I can't believe how really easy it is, the things he asks, the commandments. Simple, compared to the rules and the laws that we have today, 
that people follow without question. And we, it was so simple, the commandments, you know, the, let's just be respectful and love one another. And <clears throat> and I just, I get a kick out of it. I just think it's awesome. I, I, I'm changing my path. I'm trying to lead from the front. And as what I do notice is I know a lot of evil people that I know are evil. That when it comes to this and I'm talking to them about it, they don't push away. You know, they, they, they listen and they, they want to know. They're just scared to come in. But they're going to come in. And because uh, they're good people. And I guess that's what's bringing me to it. I don't know. I just, I'm just tired of how. I'm just tired of leading from the back. You know, I'm, I'm a better force than that. And right is right, wrong is wrong. And it's it's rough times. People, you know, they're, they're everywhere you go. They're out there self-rotting. You know, they don't, they don't take care of the gifts that have been given to them. And and I I was doing the same thing. And I realized that. I've been given so many gifts that I was not humble about it. I wasn't gracious about it. I didn't, I, I just felt I had it coming. You know what I mean? That was my hustle, it's mine. And that ain't what it, that ain't it. That ain't what it's about, you know? And I just see it different. I don't know why, but it's coming on me fast. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I thought about that. I don't think I would change or do anything different for the simple reason that it gave me the opportunity to learn, to, to, to teach and see my way through it. <sighs> funneled me, funneled me right to where I need to be, you know, in such a way that, I don't want to swear on here. I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> my vocabulary is weak without curse words. Um, without all the stuff I put myself through, <clears throat> I wouldn't. I wouldn't appreciate Jesus. You know what I mean? I don't think, because I was a little bit like my grandpa Wild, you know, in a sense. And uh, if it would, if he would have came easy to me, I wouldn't have respected him. He hasn't came easy to me. So I will fight for her. You know what I mean? My wife, and she's made that clear from the day I met her. That is her number one. And her faith is strong. She may have been a wild child, but her faith is strong. And she knows the Bible. And uh, she is it. That's who brought me to finding myself. You know, she's beautiful and she's patient. And if God sent her to me, she must have done something wrong because she's had her work cut out, I'll tell you what. But he is prevailing through her, you know. So that's Scott. <clears throat> And Scott got baptized during our 9.30 service option. That's why the tank's up here. And, and uh, 
as you can probably tell from the video, he's a, he's a big guy. That's a small tank. We had, we had some fun with that. Scott's the kind of guy, he's like, you sure I'm going to fit in that thing? He's like, you don't want to take me ice fishing, brother. And I said, I get it. Uh, I think we'll be all right. Um, and then halfway down, I realized he's not going to fit. And like his head, his head hit like on the, I was about to scalp the guy. And so I'm like, do I scoop water like this? Or what do I, what do I do? And we figured it out. But man, what a cool story. He's a great guy and uh, really was the inspiration for a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this series. We're starting a brand new series today um, called Outside the Lines. Um, it's going to be a four-part series, <clears throat> and um, it's going to go through the month of June for us. And the point of it is it sparks a little bit from his story and why he felt comfortable um, here and, and his, his kind of path back towards God. But then also... Um, I was reminded of it this week. On Thursday night, my two middle kids, twin five-year-olds, graduated from preschool. So we got a little cool picture of them here. So my kids, this is Jovi, and that's Grayson. And these are their two best friends, um, Declan and Eva. Also twins, boy-girl twins. I don't know, it was in the water. Something happened with that you know, kind of thing. But they're, they're super pumped to go into summer break to be done with it. So they walked across the straight stage. They got their little diplomas. They did all their stuff. And earlier that week, <clears throat> I had uh, been given the assignment to do pickup from preschool one of those days. Um, I, get, I don't even remember which day it was, but I uh, was going to drive over and pick them up. And along the way, I, I saw Matt and Kaylee, who were the parents of the other two twins there. They, they live across the street, basically, and uh, they were unloading their car from Costco. And they said, hey, is there any chance you could pick up the other two and bring them back you know, with us? Because... We're a little bit busy, and I said, yeah, absolutely. So I run up, and I said, all right, I got all four of them today, and little did I know that that was the day that they were going to send home all of the stuff that the kids had made all year long. That's what they apparently do at the last day of preschool. Here's what your kid started with when you gave him to us, and here's what they're able to do now, right? So I'm literally, and I've got four of them, and four kids, and one Toyota Camry, you guys. It was a show. I'm walking down the hallway like this. So then we finally get them dropped off, and we go home, and Grayson wants to show me, Joey wants to show me all the stuff that they made. And they stack it in such a way that's like, we want you to view the progression. We're trying to justify why it was a smart financial decision for you to send your kids to preschool, I think is what it is, right? So here's, here's, what, you, here's what you gave us. When you handed the kids off to us, here's where their ability of what they could create, and then here's what, you know, here's we're giving them back to you after nine months of education. See the difference? And I'm like... Uh, which, for Grayson's, which one was the before and after? I can't remember exactly. <laughs> Can I get a refund? Just kidding. Um, no, but the, the idea was, look at how outside the lines they were in their drawings over here, right? And then after discipline and training, a little bit understanding of, okay, try and draw the, between the lines here, then there, here, here's what you get over here. And that, that is true. Like, it, when you're growing up as a kid, one, as a parent, you're just excited to have them coloring, you know, taking time out of doing something else. Um, not watching TV or screens and, and coloring, and then they're outside the lines. And, and then eventually, though, the outside the lines hopefully becomes inside the lines, and then you can deal with color schemes. And as they kind of mature as an artist or so, um, it's, it's more consistently in the lines, and then, you know, they're figuring out shading and all this kind of stuff, and then you grow. But then at some point, um, at, at some point, staying within the lines, and I don't know what age that is. It's not like, look, Mom, I stayed within the lines. Like, that's really cool at three, four, five years old, like 16 years old, 20 years old, it's like, 
you know, you're not proud of that anymore, right? You've never framed to paint my number at home. You've never done that before. Um, at, at some point, you don't consider yourself a carpenter because you can put together Ikea furniture. Like, you follow instructions well. Congratulations, you're disciplined and obedient, but you're not really an artist. Artists for us are no longer, at some point, people who stay within the lines, but people who go outside the lines and do things not expected of us, things that we can't do. Even if we're good at staying within the lines, they do things intentionally outside of the lines. That's the point of like being a master of something. You master it to the point where I'm, I could do all of this. I'm gonna choose not to. And I don't do it out of ignorance. My kids go outside the lines out of ignorance, right? Uh, and some, at some point, they'd go out of the lines because of rebellion. You can't tell me what to do. I'll color wherever I want to color, right? But when you become a master at it, you know what it would take to go within the lines. But then the people who create the best kind of art are the people who kind of push the edges, push the boundaries, get us to see things a little bit differently, create something that is outside the lines, the reason that Apple and all of these different you know, companies um, have been successful is because they took what was kind of socially acceptable, did not develop a better CD player, right? A more anti-skip version. They said, well, why don't we create an iPod or why don't we create an Apple iPhone or a Wall or all these kind of things that was like, oh, no, we've never thought of that before. And then they kind of go off and expand it. So that, we, we understand that outside the lines is where progress is made, but you're only able to do that once you fully mastered what it would mean and the discipline it takes to be inside the lines. But we love things that are outside the lines. You're not supposed to do that unless you do it intentionally and you know what it would mean to stay in the lines, all right? So the point of this series is gonna be this. There are so often times in Jesus's ministry where he went outside the lines of what he was supposed to do. You're not supposed to do that. And he does it anyways. And he did it because he was a masterful, he was masterful at understanding kind of the parameters. And he had entered into a world where there was a lot of lines in the sand between who are my people who, and who are the, the, not, not my people, right? This is us and that's them. This is the religious systems in place. That's the Romans, we're the Jews. All of these different times, of, you shouldn't interact with them. You shouldn't do that. Here's what you should and shouldn't do if you're gonna be a religiously good person. If you're gonna be uh, in line with what God expects of you, you don't do that and you do do this. And you are measured at your ability, in that time, you are measured at your ability to stay within the lines, and any, court, any sort of strain outside of that was, uh, uh, uh. and at some point, religion is that for a lot of people, right? We're trying to master our own desires and master our own self. And so for us, we go through a period of life where part of becoming a Christian or part of becoming more religious is, all right, I need to kind of be, make myself more disciplined and stay within the lines of, of what I know is, is, is healthy for me to do. But then it, but that, then that's great. Like, you need to do that as a five-year-old. I'm glad that my, my kids' teachers taught them to stay within the lines. But as maturity kind of progresses, there's something that goes beyond that, that there's something that's more valuable beyond that, that true art or true creativity takes place outside the lines. And I'm not just limiting this to art. What I want to look at are stories in the life of, of, of Jesus where he lived and loved outside the lines, and he invites us as his followers to do the exact same thing. So we're gonna look at two passages. Both of them come from the book of Luke. Luke was one of the gospel writers. So in the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Luke was probably a doctor. This is church history tells us that he was a doctor of sorts, um, meaning he was very well educated. Um, he was not one of Jesus' disciples, um, not one of the 12, but he gathered information post the Jesus encounters because he probably felt like there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of stories 
Somebody needs to kind of collect these and provide a very well-documented account of what Jesus was, who, what he taught, and what he did with his time uh, with us. Uh, and so he, he writes an open letter. You can read it in the very first few verses of both Luke and Acts. He wrote both of those things. He writes a letter to Theophilus, which could have been a person. It also could have just been people who love God. That's kind of the name of the word. So a God lover or whatever. Um, uh, and he, he writes it in such a way that's very academic. It's very, I, I well re, it's, this is well-researched. This is well-documented. It becomes one of the ones that is less um, about an angle. Matthew, in his account, we're going to draw a comparison between the two texts, often writes towards a Jewish audience. Luke wrote more to a Gentile audience, trying to get a little bit more facts right. This is what I know, and maybe I wasn't there, but this is who I heard it from, and this is kind of important information. So in Luke chapter 5 is our first story. It, uh, it's a, probably a very familiar story if you grew up in church. I won't kind of go verse by verse through it simply because of that. Uh, I will go verse by verse through the, the account that takes place just a couple of chapters later. But in Luke chapter 5, um, Matthew, uh, or sorry, Jesus approaches a guy named Matthew, or in, in uh, Luke's version, it's uh, a different name. His name is Levi probably the same person, who's a tax collector. Jesus goes to this guy who's supposed to be out of bounds. You're not supposed to associate with tax collectors, right? They're the ones that take advantage of the Jewish people. They're the ones that charge exorbitant amount of sums of taxes on the Jewish people and then pocket some of it for themselves. They're shady. They're all about money. It's all about greed for them. They sell their own, um, like their own, their own race and their own people for the sake of personal benefit for the Romans. They're taking advantage of it, and the system is benefiting them, and, it's, and so it's, it's a bad deal. Jesus goes to, to this guy named Levi and says, follow me, follow me. And it says in that moment, Levi left everything and followed him. He then throws a party, invites his fellow tax collectors and sinners to this party, throws a feast, which I've never thought about it before, but in, in looking at it this week and kind of reflecting on it, thinking about that feast, the fact that Jesus showed up, Anytime that there was a meal involved, it was a sign of when you ate with somebody, it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor. We're celebrating together. We're communing together. We're getting physically nourished together. Um, There's all kinds of social commentary taking place when you agreed to a meal with somebody, all right? And so Matthew invites him over to this party. Jesus, knowing full well that there are going to be not only just Matthew, but all of his buddies, his tax collector buddies there decides to accept the invitation to the party, shows up. And after the event, we don't know how long after, but it says after this, the Pharisees showed up. This is in verse uh, 20, no, sorry, 30. In verse 30, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Pharisees are the religious leaders, they're the priests, they're the pastors of the day. They go to his disciples at some point after the thing took place and says, what's up with your guy eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Why did he say yes to that invitation? We would never, we would never be publicly associated with people of that category. We would never do that. To which their response would be, well, you would never have been invited in the first place, right? Anyways, we, would, we, we have higher standards than that. We cannot allow ourselves to degrade ourselves in the eyes of others. We, the, that bar is too low for us. Why would your master do this? And it's interesting. Luke records that Jesus responded, though the question was directed towards his disciples. Jesus responds to them, and his response goes something like this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick who need a doctor. Which I, I love this. Because he, it doesn't say 
in this moment that, that, that those people, the tax collectors and sinners, are out of the room. Like he's like, it's not the healthy. You know, he's like doing this in the side. It's almost as like he says this publicly in front of them with them potentially having the ability to overhear all of them. And it doesn't say, and the tax collectors and, Pharisees, and sinners were offended that Jesus would say this. Listen, in my experience with people who know that they're outside of the church, that they know they're probably not doing all the right things, they're not living their best life now, that for somebody like Jesus, whom they respected enough to invite them to the party, and he had the audacity to show up, and when he says, hey, it's not the healthy you need the, 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 a doctor, but the sick, they'd be like, cheers, we are sick. You know what I mean? We, we, that is us. We are not offended at that. We sort of revel in that sort of categorization, as long as it's somebody that we respect and invite into. Do you know what I mean? That's the difference. And then he uses this term, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Him, he himself being a doctor. And you, thinking about your own life, what do you want most from a doctor, right? You want them to be one, gray-haired because they got experience. You never, you never want a doctor who's like, I'm 24, I just graduated medical school. You're like, you need to find somebody else. I'm so glad that you're graduated, but uh, I need somebody who's done this before, right? Um, you want uh, somebody who is also honest with you. you. Honesty is one of those characteristic traits that you want in a doctor. I don't want a doctor to be so scared of telling me bad information that he lies to me at the loss. I don't want him to be like, oh, he's got cancer, but I don't want to tell him. I think you're all right. You'll be all right, right? You'll probably be fine, but uh, you do need to watch the cholesterol, you know, just a little bit. You know what I mean? He's trying to like dance around some things. The nice thing that, about doctors, as bad as you don't want to hear it, you know you need to, and so please be honest with me. Yes, I have a spud nuts problem. I work three doors down from it. I, I get it. I understand, but I need you to tell me that. When you, when you go and you have, when, when that person has that place of authority in your life, that you've given them authority to say those types of things, that's different from the Pharisees who, who would also call these people, the tax collectors and sinners, sick people. And they'd be like, yeah, but you can't call us that because you're doing it from a place of, I, 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 you're doing it from a place of shaking your finger at me. We know what you think. We're not really in the business of hearing about that, but but why do you think that Jesus was allowed to not only be a part of that, but say those types of things and to live in that way? And here's the reason why I think that's true. Jesus chose to do his ministry and live his life and love people outside the lines of what were drawn for him. Now, listen, I wanna be the type of person that has influence across boundaries. I wanna be a part of a church that has influence with those types of people. I wanna be the type of church where a guy like Scott can come in kick the tires for a little bit, check some things out, decide on his own where he wants to get to. I, and you talk with him, because uh, his video, by the way, I know that was a long video. It was like 40 minutes of material, you guys. We had to cut down, 80% of it was cut. You're like, you should cut down these videos more. I don't know how to. It was, it was so, and, it's, and some of it was just so good, right? But in those moments, you go, I, I want this to be the place. How do we continue to make Eastlake and our and, and not just like as a corporation, but man, me individually, how do I move from being a place where somebody's like scared to come that's like that? 
because they know, they know that I'm broken. They know that I need some help. They know that I need this, I need this. How do you gain the level of authority and trust in their life where you can be like, hey, let's talk about where we need to grow, where we need to live inside the lines. But it requires us living outside the lines to have that platform, to have that influence in them. There's another really cool story. Two chapters later in Luke chapter seven. This one will walk through verse by verse and show this. Uh, verse one, chapter seven, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he, we're coming off a, a period where he gathers a group of people and kind of teaches publicly. So that, that's the preface to this. To the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, which was a city. There a centurion's uh, servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Centurion, just so you know, is a Roman soldier who was in charge of and oversaw a hundred men who worked for him, okay? Century, centurion, that's, that's the whole tie-in, right? So he's not only a military figure, but he would be in charge of a certain region and have access to kind of uh, the military side of things. He would be an authority figure. They would have, Rome had a, a uh, their style was to keep in place people who were like from that ethnic origin to kind of run the day-to-day law stuff. So that's why King Herod was a Jew who was in, you know, he was the king of that area during that time. However, there would also be a military presence. So he would give them the, the appearance of autonomy, like you can run your own show, but don't forget, I have eyes and boots on the ground as well. And if this all gets all messed up, if Herod goes you know, sideways on me, it begins to say things that are anti-Rome or anti-empire, don't worry, we've got enough people in place to kind of keep the score right, right? So that's, that's the centurion in this spot. Pretty, pretty lowly regarded from a Jewish standpoint. Um, probably a very wealthy person because um, he got paid well to do it because he wasn't able to live in Rome. He was, he was often in the, you know, living in the scrub land, basically, in the Roman insight. So anyways, he's got a servant who's sick, probably paralyzed in Matthew's version. And... Uh, Asking, and then in this moment, or verse three, here's what it says. The centurion heard of Jesus, because who hadn't at that point, and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, in Matthew's account, the centurion approaches Jesus himself, which could have happened. Um, it could be a different story. I, I like to think that Luke kind of, did this he's like in, in a way where he's like, listen, this is just the way that I heard it. Matthew could have kind of um, uh, fudged some things to kind of make a point. He could have, this could have been a completely different scenario. Or as an authority figure, a lot of times they'll say, Pilate flogged Jesus. I don't think that Pilate actually had the flogging. He just ordered it to be done. And in a sense, he did it vicariously through the people who worked for him. In this sense, I think what we get is the actual probable truth. And listen to this story. Who does he send? He sends some elders of the Jews to him, to Jesus. The centurion has a sick servant slave person who's about to die. He hears that there's this Jewish Messiah figure who's got this ability to heal. He's desperate for his servant. He loves him. And so what do I got to do? I'm going to send who Jesus thinks I should send. I'm going to play with it. I know that I'm probably outside of the bounds to go and talk to Jesus myself. 
I'm going to save you the disgrace of having to talk to or help a centurion. So I'm going to use these, this avenue in this means. I'm going to send elders of the Pharisees or elders of the church, elders of the temple to come and do this. Then he goes on. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. In other words... This guy is, is somebody who has not leveraged his power for his own personal benefit, but has done some really genuinely nice things. Um, he, he, he paid, he financed, which is kind of made perhaps common in this um, Jewish town. They, they, they believed in allowing a religious system to take place because it's easier to manage people when they had some sort of a place to worship. So that, that could have been a part of it. But at some point, he calls in a favor. He's not willing to go do this himself, recognizing I'm imperfect. I don't think he wants to hang out with me. I feel like I'm outside the lines of what's appropriate. I don't think Jesus is supposed to hang out with people like me or do favors for people like me. He's supposed to do favors for people who are part of the temple and in, in the, included in that religious system. And since I've got kind of an in with them, I'm gonna ask them to go do this for me. So Jesus went with them, verse six. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him. Now he's sending friends. He sent people within Jesus' kind of own race and religious system, and now he's sending other people, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Listen to this phrase. This guy who most people wouldn't live up to the honor to have the centurion visit their house. He would be outside of the bounds from a social setting for so many people, understands how these things work. And so for Jesus, tries to help him save face and says, first of all, you know, don't come to my house. Here, listen to these elders. And then as he's getting close, knowing that this is probably an inevitability, sends his own friends to say, no, seriously, I don't want to put you out. I know I'm out of bounds for you. I'm not worthy of this. Please don't subject yourself for my sake. Let me help you out. And then he goes on. But say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself and a man under authority when, with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and that one to come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. He goes into this soliloquy basically about how I understand how authority works. Listen, you and I can kind of talk on level playing fields. You seem to be this religious leader with people who are disciples and following you, and they go and do your bidding when you ask them to do that. I get that from a military standpoint. Sometimes they do it out of fear, probably for me, or because they're employees of mine, but I get it. I don't need you to come here. You say the word, and I, I'm sure it will happen. I don't know how all of this spiritual healing stuff works, and, and I've probably exhausted all of my resources in terms of natural healing, and I'm so desperate because out of love, for this servant of mine, who from this point just reveals kind of the character of this person, by the way. Because in that culture, as soon as the servant was, or the slave was no longer providing added value for you, you just fired him or got rid of him or sold him or did something different. Like, why would you hang on to a servant who no longer produces? This is speaking to the character of this person. So anyways, he approaches uh, or, or, or through, through, through these people, through these intermediums, he's approaching Jesus saying, no, I get it, man. I, I, I seriously... I understand. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. 
There are only a couple of times in scripture where it talks about specifically Jesus being amazed. And did you know that every single one of them included people outside of the religious system? He was never amazed at somebody within the religious system. He was never amazed at a Jewish person's faith. It was typically a Gentile or outsider's faith. You who have all this odds stacked against you, who from a, like, a, like a social perspective, wh- wh- you don't even belong here. We're not supposed to be talking to each other. And yet Jesus understands, listen, I'm, I am doing most of my ministry outside the lines. And for somebody to see that, to, to recognize that they're not worthy about it, but to do something out of such desperation and love, to do something out of, out of, out of such a, a hope for something to take place, he's amazed at the faith of this centurion and says, go back home, your servant will be healed. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Listen, we're so often obsessed with our imperfections that it takes a lot sometimes. We, we, some, if you've been around church for a while, you, you forget this. You become insider focus. And the, the human nature for us is anytime we get in something, we wanna make it difficult for others to get in because it creates a more exclusionary sense of importance for us. And we feel like, wow, we're more, we feel better about ourselves because we made it at the exclusion of other people. And that is so incredibly damaging and it's so opposite from what Jesus did. Listen, the gospel is not good news for some people, it's good news for all people, right? This is the message that Jesus had in this sense. He goes, you've made it good news for some people, people who are probably imperfect, aware of their imperfections, and aware of the social things that are needed to be able to come and approach me. And I'm gonna wipe all of that away and say, you know what? I'm gonna gonna choose to live and to love outside the lines of what is typically like this us versus them thing. And I'm gonna invite you to do the same. Listen, we had a, there's a guy, I'll close with this story too, but um, there's a guy who uh, I, I talked about last week. In fact, if you were here during second service, 11 o'clock service, um, his name's Calvin. He's, he just got a job, just job transferred to Boise, moved on Saturday, I think. Um, but before he left this last week, I made a mention of it last week. Uh, before we, he left this, uh, this last week, we went out and met um, and, and we're talking through some things. And he was saying, um, yeah, moving to Boise, got a job working for Micron over there. And uh, I said, have you done any church shopping or house shopping or anything like that? And he's like, yeah, house shopping, this is the market and all this kind of stuff. And church shopping, he's like, I did some Google searches and, and whatever, but honestly, um, I, I don't know. I'm st- that's gonna be a struggle for me. He goes, he said, uh, I'll be honest with you. I will not miss much of the Tri-Cities, but I will miss Eastlake. I will miss this. And every once in a while, we get people who move, job transfer, they'll move to some other place. They'll email me or, and, and say stuff like, hey, I'm moving to so-and-so, you know, uh, do you know of any good churches down there? Uh, we had one uh, like a, a year ago, I'm moving to South Dakota. Do you know any good churches down there? I'm like, nope. No, I, do they have, they have churches though. Okay, great. Uh, so that's good. That's some other direction. I have no idea. Um, and he, he, said, uh, he said, I'm really missing that. Um, what, what's it going to take to start East Lake Boise? <laughs> that's what he said. Uh, and uh, so we laughed about that. And then I, I was sitting there and I realized in that moment, he's like, I, I've never connected well with the church beyond, the, beyond East Lake. I, I felt like this has been 
unique for me. Like, and, and maybe this is for you too. Like, it, it feels out of the, and, and I, I really want to prop, I really want to try and make sure that we understand that this is not a series about how great we are. This is a series about how great Jesus is and how we, the reason that it's so attractive is because Jesus himself was attractive. Not that Jesus got us to a certain point and we can take it further. He was the master at this, you guys. He knew all the lines. He knew, he knew where everybody stood. He knew what he was supposed to do and not supposed to do. And he completely disregarded some of those things and said, I'm gonna choose to do what I need to do because the gospel is good news for all people, not just some people. And so for the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to look at. Not only like corporately, like how do we get this right? Because we cannot afford to not get this right. I don't want to be a part of a church that does ministry for some people. <laughs> the people who are good enough to approach Jesus. Listen, there are people in our community who in their desperate times of measure would send emissaries or send people or send messages to them or show up and be like, oh, I don't know, I'm not really like a church, but I don't know how this whole works. When do I stand? When do I sit? What am I supposed to say? I, I don't know any of this. I don't know any of this. And not only do I want to be a part of that corporately, I, I need to know, this is a challenge, this is for the next couple of weeks, a challenge even for myself. What kind of categories have I made for me in terms of looking at who's inside the boundaries and who's outside of the boundaries? Who am I supposed to hang out with and who, what am I, who am I not supposed to hang out with? What am I supposed to do and what am I not supposed to do? When I measure myself about staying within the lines, that is a very immature way of looking at faith. Maturity is I go outside the lines and I don't do it out of rebellion or out of ignorance. I do it out of intentionality. Why? Because the good news is not for some people, it is for all people. So for the next few weeks, we are gonna look at what's it gonna take for us to get this. Not as a corporation, as an organization, individually. Why do I keep falling into this idea that I have certain friends that I think I could invite to Eastlake and certain friends who I won't do it because it would they're not, yeah, you wouldn't like them, Brent. They're, they're, Scott said in the video, I have friends who are evil people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Did you hear that? And then he's like, but they're gonna come anyways because they're good people. And I'm like, you just said they were evil people. Which one is it, Scott? But he's like, I, I get it. They're, it's, yes, it's both. Yes, it's broken. It's imperfect people. And yet grace is extended to them just like it's been to you. But sometimes we've been in it so long we've forgotten that. So, how do we grow and become more obsessed with following Jesus as he invites us to live and to love outside the lines? Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Maybe we have been, at some point in our life, a little bit like Levi and the tax collectors. Maybe we've been like the centurion. We kind of know that we're out of bounds. And uh, 
And at some point, maybe it was just even today, we, we took some steps towards, we, we recognized that um, there's something broken in us, that there's something messed up in us, that we know that we're not perfect, that we don't need anybody to tell us that we're not perfect. And, but if, if we respected enough, uh, somebody enough to be able to actually say that, we wouldn't disagree with them. We'd be like, yeah, yep, that's me. And then at some point, we make a move towards you. And you, in your infinite grace, have lived outside the lines and invite us into knowing you. This is all, we recognize God. This is a lot of reasons why there are people who are so sick and tired of church, but not sick and tired of who you are or your son, Jesus. And that's shameful, really, for the life of the church, but we get a chance, as much as that can be a critique about the way churches operate, a challenge for us becomes a challenge for us. How do we get this right? How do we do this right together as an organization and a corporation and a whatever? But how do I do this right personally? If I can't get this right personally, then I'm missing out on the invitation that you give us to live and to love outside the lines. Help us in the few, next few weeks as we discover what that would look like for us. Give us the wisdom to know how this applies to us. Encourage to act on it in your name. Amen.